You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Be in 2 Samuel chapter 8, 9, and 10 this morning. 8, 9, and 10. As we've watched David's kingdom flourish, we're reminded that the arrival of the Lord Jesus marks the coming of God's kingdom. He is God's king, and thus God's kingdom comes with God's king as he's born and as he came into the world 2,000 years ago. And the coming of the kingdom and its king demands a response from us. Jesus gave us that response as he began his ministry after his wilderness temptation The message was summarized in Mark's gospel simply as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a response. The kingdom has come and it's king. What does it require of us? Repentance. But what ought to astound us, I think, this morning about God's kingdom is not the demands of the king, which is one of repentance, but the kindness of the king. The king is kind. Perhaps you think of Jesus as nothing more than going into the divine principal room's office, ready to get scolded, ready to get reprimanded, ready to be expelled. But what surprises us about Jesus is his kindness. Jesus is the rightful king. He demands your loyalty, your service, your obedience, yes. But he is also a generous king who is filled with loving kindness and who shows that kindness to the undeserving, and shows that kindness even to his enemies. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see David's kingdom continues to advance right off the Davidic covenant in chapter 7, where David's name will be made great and his kingdom will endure forever. In chapter 8, we are given a summary of rapid military expansion of David's kingdom. And with the growth of David's kingdom, we'll see that David continued to reign with justice and with righteousness. As we get to chapter 9 this morning, we'll see the kindness of the king on display as David shows his kindness by keeping his covenant with Jonathan and graciously provides for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. But David's kindness is not only given to the house of Israel, but also to the nations. And in chapter 10, we'll see this morning, David extends that kindness to the Ammonites. However, David's kindness at that occasion will be rebuffed. So this unit of 2 Samuel, we're going to see with increasing clarity how David's kingship foreshadows the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we turn to 2 Samuel 8, we read a summary report of David's military activities over the course of his reign. 2 Samuel 8 is not ordered chronologically, but geographically. That's very important. As we discussed last time, much of chapter 8 probably happened before chapter 7. Moreover, some of the battles here in chapter 8 
are expanded on later in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Samuel. All that to say, the author in this summary of military activity is not giving us a chronology of those activities in a play-by-play sort of fashion, but he's giving us the, the snapshot, the picture of David's expanding kingdom during his reign. And in its expanding, as we'll see geographically, in every direction. So let's start with verse 1. The kingdom expanded west as David subdued the Philistines. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. Now we've been following the Philistines much of 1 and 2 Samuel. They provided a recurring recurring enemy for Israel for generations, ever since the time of the judges. But now with King David, they are finally subdued once and for all. After David's reign, the Philistines aren't going to give Israel any sort of trouble again until the reign of Hezekiah. He will put them in their place. David got his start by slaying the Philistine Goliath, and through his reign, he squashed them permanently into submission. So the kingdom expands west towards Philistine. But then in verse 2, the kingdom expands eastward as David conquers Moab. Let's read about that in verse 2. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So here we see the kingdom goes eastward and the Moabites come under the rule of King David. So much so that they're bringing him tribute. But the kingdom also expands, not just west, not just east, but north. You're seeing the geography here, right? Now the expansion northward is described in verses 3 through 12. And these events most likely happened after 2 Samuel 10 because of the mention of Hadadezar. But I won't get into the weeds of how scholars reconstruct the chronology here. So we're simply just going to follow the author's ordering of the text. But the point here I want you to see is that the kingdom of David is expanding yet again, northward towards the river Euphrates. And also notice here, as we read the section, how the wealth of the nations begin to pour into David's kingdom. Let's let's read what happens in verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates... And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Adadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betha and from Barathai, cities of Hadadazar, the king David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadazar, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him for Hadadezar had often been at war with Toy and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold and of bronze. 
These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spool of Hadadezar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Much detail here is given about David's fighting, but also notice the spoil of victory. David, we're told, hamstrung all the chariot horses except for 100, which probably would have been a PETA violation today. But why did David do such a thing, right? Well, this is most likely because of a warning from Deuteronomy about the king not accumulating many horses. David does not take very much horses for himself, right? He, he restrains himself. He doesn't take war horses. He kind of confines them to working in agriculture. But David does take, the text says, very much bronze. In addition, when King Toy saw that David had eliminated his rival, he gladly, and might I add, wisely submitted to David's and king kingdom and begins to offer tribute. And so we're told that silver and gold and bronze all began to flow from the nations into Jerusalem as David dedicated the wealth, the text says, to the Lord. David's wealth accumulation, it's not for his own sake, but what is he doing? He's preparing for the building of the temple. Chronicles records how David sets aside the materials for Solomon to use to actually build the temple. Remember, the Lord forbade him from doing it in chapter 7. His son will do it, but David says, well, I can't do it myself, but I can have all the stuff there ready for it to be built as soon as I'm dead and gone. So the wealth of the temple, notice what's happening here. To build the temple, it comes from David's plundering of the nations. Just as Israel plundered the Egyptians in order to have the materials they needed to make the tabernacle, so does David plunder the nations to have the materials required to build the temple. David's gathering of wealth from the nations anticipates a greater gathering to come from King Jesus. Isaiah promised, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Haggai proclaimed that God would shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations would come in. When Christ the king was born, the Magi brought treasures of the nations and laid them in Bethlehem before the child Jesus in fulfillment of those promises. And when Christ returns and the new Jerusalem is established, remember the end of Revelation? The kings of the earth will bring their glory to the feet of King Jesus. So the kingdom's expansion continues in every direction here, right? It's gone to the west, it's gone to the east, it's gone north, it's gone south. Israel's rival, the descendants of Esau called the Edomites would be struck down in the Valley of Salt. Let's read about it in verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. We're told with this particular battle, David made a name for himself. And of course, that language calls back to the last chapter, the Davidic covenant, where God had promised to make David's name great. And here we see David's name becoming great. Edom comes under the rule of Judah's scepter. And in the summary of military victories, we're reminded, just in case we forget, this isn't because David's so great, it's because the Lord is great. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. 
So the rule of David in Jerusalem, as you see with this geographical ordering, is going every direction. And so does Jesus' kingdom as well. Begun in Jerusalem, the church received the Holy Spirit and began to preach the gospel. And the book of Acts traces that expansion of God's kingdom from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, just like David's kingdom. It radiates outward in every direction from Jerusalem. And of course, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, the capital of the pagan empire. So after these last 2,000 years since the book of Acts, we've seen the kingdom of God keep expanding, haven't we? Keep radiating outward from Jerusalem all the way even to a place called Wilson, North Carolina. The gospel has come. The kingdom advances And yet we know there's still work for us to do, isn't there? The kingdom still grows. The kingdom is still expanding. There is still work for us to be done to expand the gospel of King Jesus to the furthest places of the earth where the victory of Christ is yet unknown. And though Jesus's kingdom is not a political one, at least not until he returns, the kingdom is visible in local churches, Embassies of the kingdom where his redeemed citizens gathered together. We must all labor to see Jesus's kingdom advance. And we all have a role to play to seeing that happen. Whether it means sharing the gospel with a coworker over lunch, whether it means inviting a neighbor over in the evening to read the Bible together, whether it means traveling overseas to the unreached parts of the earth, whatever assignment the Lord has given you, we should all labor, all be at work to see Jesus's kingdom go forth. But like Jesus, David is a wise king who seeks to expand his kingdom, but also does not overlook domestic affairs. Even amid the rapid expansion, David is a wise king who ruled his kingdom ever expanding with justice and equity. Let's read this summary here in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. David's administration is summarized, it's defined by justice and equity. Justice and equity. Justice has been an important term throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. And you think back a few places where we've heard it over our study together. The Hebrew word here is mishpat, which can be translated as justice or custom or the rule of a leader. What sort of leader is this? What's the justice of this particular leader? That's the mishpat of the leader. That was the mishpat of Hophni and Phinehas to steal from the sacrifices of the Lord. That was their justice. Samuel warned Israel of the mishpat of a king who would be like all the nations who takes, 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 takes from them. But David is a king unlike the nations. He is God's king 
And so when David rescued the captured wives and children from the Ammonites while, while Saul's being slaughtered in the battlefield, you remember he made it his mishpat, his justice, his custom, that all the soldiers share in the spoil of victory equally. Now, as the author sums up David's administration, he returns to that same term. He says the mishpat of David, the justice of David is defined by equity, or I think probably a better translation here, righteousness. David ruled What was his justice like? It was according to God's moral standard. He executed God's justice, not his own. He governed in accordance with God's word, guiding him and directing him in his steps. Now, as you look at the governments of the nations, perhaps even our own, righteousness is probably not the word that comes to mind. Perhaps the word corrupt is how we frequently assess them. And we would be hard-pressed to find any human government right now on planet Earth that we could say, well, their mishpat, their justice is righteousness. Probably wouldn't find it. But, But yet, we see in David's kingdom a glimpse of a kingdom of God. What it would be like, what it would be like to be under a government defined by God's justice, by God's righteousness. And yet Isaiah would prophesy that a king like David would one day come to do just that. Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, it's a familiar passage. He writes of the coming Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. For David's kingdom to execute this sort of justice, this sort of righteousness or equity in Israel, it required good leadership. And it required the delegation of David's authority to trusted leaders. So we get a list of members here of David's cabinet, if you will. And I think there are some even applications here for local embassies of the kingdom of God that we call local churches, like Redemption Church. Organization. Structure and good leaders are vital for the church to exhibit the justice and equity of King Jesus faithfully. Questions of church polity, questions about biblical church offices, all of the administrative apparatus necessary, like a members meeting, right, for a church to do its work, it can seem to some to be a little excessive and perhaps to some even unspiritual. But churches that give attentiveness to the scriptures concerning healthy church government will be more faithful representatives of God's kingdom on earth. We should all care about church membership. We should all care about installing faithful elders. We should all care about calling faithful deacons. We should all care about developing a biblical model of church government. And why do we care about such things? It's because we long for the glory of God's kingdom to be displayed clearly and winsomely to the watching world. Show me a church with meaningless membership, with sloppy church government, with unqualified leaders, and I will show you a divided and carnal church that contradicts the righteous rule of King Jesus. In this list of leaders in David's administration, there's perhaps one that jumps out, at least it jumped out to me in verse 18. Why are David's sons serving as priests? They weren't Levites. 
Obviously, they're not acting as high priests. Zadok oversaw the priesthood as a high priest, but, but nevertheless, it's surprising to see David's son serving in this sort of way. The author doesn't give any reason or comment about whether this was a good thing for David to do for his sons, but I think it yet again foreshadows some of the problems David will later have in the handling of his family. The author has conditioned us so far throughout 1 and 2 Samuel to be skeptical about the sons of Israel's leaders, hasn't he? The sons of Eli were given powerful positions in the tabernacle, but what do they do? Well, they were worthless men, the text says, who perverted justice. Under his judgeship, Samuel's sons, we're told, took bribes and perverted justice. And so with God's covenant now coming to David and his sons, the, the text has heightened our interest in David's sons. Will David's sons follow in the same pattern as prior sons? Will they be different? At this point in Samuel, we're unsure of exactly what will come, but if you know the rest of the book, you know that trouble will come from David's sons. And the author seems to put a rock in our shoe here, I think at this point, to cause us to wonder what is going on here? What is happening? What will happen with David's sons? And here we perhaps begin to intuit there may be trouble afoot in the coming chapters. Now, with David's kingdom thriving, both in its foreign policy and its domestic policies, displaying God's justice and righteousness, we now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we see the covenantal faithfulness and the loving kindness of God's king showered upon the crippled son of Jonathan. Let's read about David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called to him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David is a king who is faithful to his word and loyal to his covenant with his friend Jonathan. He longs to show kindness to anyone from Saul's house, just as he promised his best friend Jonathan that he would do. So David launches an investigation. He wants to find someone who might have any sort of connection still to the house of Saul. So he contacts Ziba, who seems to be the man who is managing Saul's estate. Now, based on the evidence of this chapter, it seems to be the fact that Saul's estate had come under the ownership of David and his administration, with Ziba being the steward of it. He's working the land and giving the profits of the land to David. But if anyone knew... And if there was anyone left from Saul's house that remained alive, well, Ziba's got to be the guy who knows. He would know. And Ziba tells David that there is, there's one. 
is the crippled son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. Now, you may remember back in 2 Samuel 4 that the five-year-old Mephibosheth was injured while fleeing after receiving the news of his grandfather and father's death. Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet permanently. And it was sort of a lasting physical reminder of that dark day that Saul and Jonathan died and his family was cut off. Should Saul's kingdom have passed to Jonathan, the kingdom would have one day been passed to Mephibosheth. But since he was five years old, his future was erased, exiled, and disabled. Mephibosheth was a former would-be king who became exiled and helpless. Right in the middle of Mephibosheth's name is Bosheth, which means shame. Mephibosheth personified the shame of the rejected house of Saul. But David, as we will see, covers that shame with his kindness. When David finally tracks down Mephibosheth, he has the man brought before him. And imagine for a second the fear that must have been brewing in Mephibosheth's soul. He's the lone remnant of Saul's house. He's been in hiding. And now King David has sent his men to come bring him into his presence. Mephibosheth probably anticipated his execution. He's obviously fearful. And even with his disability, Mephibosheth, with great difficulty, gets down on his knees, and not just on his knees, but on his face, and puts himself prostrate before the feet of David. And David calls out his name, Mephibosheth. And a fearful Mephibosheth, unsure of what awaited him, calls back, behold, I am your servant. Could Mephibosheth get any lower at this point, at this moment? Could he be any more humiliated? Could he be any more of a pauper? Could he be in any more danger than before the powerful King David? He was but a crippled man with his face in the dirt. What hope of survival might he have before the glory of God's King? But the mishpat of David is righteousness. And like the Lord, David is faithful to his covenant. And the king's generous grace is both shocking and surprising. David speaks kindly to Mephibosheth in verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David pledges to make Mephibosheth, the man of crushed dreams and crushed feet, the recipient of his generous provision. He will show Mephibosheth kindness for the sake of his father, Jonathan. And David promises to make Mephibosheth now the heir of Saul's estates. He gives Mephibosheth a princely inheritance. But even better, David promises to treat Mephibosheth as his own son, always welcoming him to his table. This crippled orphan Mephibosheth is now adopted into the house of King David. Such unexpected and undeserved grace 
left Mephibosheth in utter bafflement. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Out of all the episodes of King David's life that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think this one is perhaps the most moving because it captures the essence of the gospel so beautifully. Christ is the glorious king who shows loving kindness to dead dogs like us. We are dead dogs, just like Mephibosheth. A living dog may perhaps be of some value to David, maybe for hunting or something like that. But yet, a dead dog? What value does David get by doing this? And the answer is none. There's no value for David in this equation. And yet, we're dead just like Mephibosheth. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We are crippled by a far more odious plight called sin. But yet in the gospel, Jesus not only spares us from his wrathful judgment, but because of our sins, he also saves us and redeems us from that judgment and then blesses us with salvation and then invites us into fellowship with him. How wonderful it is to be forgiven of our sins as Jesus lays down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, removing the condemnation we deserve. That's, that alone should make us rejoice and praise and worship to God for his kindness. But the gospel is more than that. It's more than just forgiveness of sins. It's the good news that our glorious King and Savior actually lifts us up out of the groveling dirt and sets us as royalty in his kingdom. He withholds no good thing from us. Instead, by his covenantal love, he lavishes us with his loving kindness. What makes David's generosity to Mephibosheth so moving? is that we see the generosity of Jesus to us. And even though we are dead dogs of no value to Jesus, the Lord regards us. What a precious word that is. Friend, you may be here this morning and you may think that no one regards you. You may think that no one cares. Your family ignores you. Your friends abandon you. Every dream you had and hope you've clung to has evaporated away like the dew of the earth. And you are roasting in the hot affliction of despair and fear. You are lost. You are trapped in the crippling power of your sin with no one to regard you, no one to help you, no one who cares. Behold the good news. The Lord Jesus has regard for a dead dog like you. Make yourself prostrate before him today. Come before God's king. And like Mephibosheth, fall flat on your face. As difficult as it is to get down there, get down there anyway, because the ground of your brokenness is a wonderful place to be. All of God's children have been there. Indeed, we all have been there. And though the dirt tastes bitter, it is the sweetness of repentance. And by your faith in the king and his kindness, trust that he will see your faith, that he will raise you in his salvation, and that he will indeed lavish you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. David stayed true to his word. And the remainder of chapter nine describes David's generous kindness to Mephibosheth. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, 
all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth became the owner over Saul's estate. Ziba is given the prophet. He's to take it and no longer give it to David. It's Mephibosheth. It belongs to him. And notice, Mephibosheth doesn't even have to work the estate, does he? He can't work the estate. He simply enjoys the fruits of the estate. And so Mephibosheth, we're told, not only enjoyed this estate, but he is invited to dine with the king like one of David's own sons in Jerusalem. And in case we had forgotten, in case we had forgotten just how helpless Mephibosheth was, the author reminds us yet again in verse 13, he's lame in both of his feet. All of God's grace is undeserved unmerited. All of his blessings come by his sheer grace. Our salvation from sin, our status as children of God, all come because of God's king and because of his generosity. But may we respond in humble worship this morning to the kindness of King Jesus. Chapter 10 is connected to chapter 8 as it continues David's military campaigns, but it's also connected to chapter 9 as David's kindness is not only given to Mephibosheth, but even to a mourning Gentile prince. But yet not everyone will humble themselves and receive the king's loving kindness. Let's read about this in chapter 10, verse one. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him uh, concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to, to you to search the city and to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. After the death of the king of the Ammonites, David wishes to return the loyalty that Nahash had shown him now to his son. And we're not given extensive background in Samuel about the relationship between David and Nahash, only that they seem to have a loyal, friendly relationship. In fact, the word loyal here is hesed, which is in the Hebrew often translated as loving kindness. It's the same verb that appeared earlier with Mephibosheth. David is the Jewish king who seeks to extend the kindness of God to the nations. And as God promised Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through your lineage. And here we see David seeking to do just that. 
to bless the nations with his kindness. And as an expression of sympathy, he sends a delegation to to comfort Nahash's son. And in the ancient world, the death of a king involved great political instability with the transition of power. Some of the Ammonite advisors are a little skeptical of David's gesture and his motives, convincing Hanan that, that David doesn't intend kindness, but betrayal. These are spies to overthrow him and the kingdom. So Hanan rejects the king, kindness of David, and he dishonors the messengers. He shaved off half of their beard. He cut their garments down the middle. Both were expressions of grief in a way, right? To, to rip out your beard, to tear your clothes. But, but this is an excessive mocking of David's attempt to show grief and sorrow. He's mocking it by going to extreme and dishonoring the men by shaving off half their beard. That's an attack on their manhood. And though we're unclear exactly how they cut their clothes down the middle, we're not sure if they removed the top garment or the bottom garment, but you take a picture there. Either way, these men are beardless and naked walking home. David's kindness was spat upon by the Ammonites. But David is like the Lord. He is slow to anger. He covers the shame of these disgraced men. He gives them time to grow out their beards in private before they return publicly. And though David was dishonored, he doesn't rapidly rally the troops and get ready to strike vengeance. That's not what we see at all. Though he was dishonored, he bears the blow. He seemingly turns the other cheek. He shows kindness to those who shame him. And they realize that the Ammonites did, that what they had done, they realized the severity of their actions. They begin to fear, well, how is David going to retaliate? What is he going to do? How is he going to attack us? And so they began to hire an army simply by their perception, thinking that David, assuming that David would attack them back. And so they began to hire an army to take David down. And rather than repenting of the scorn of the king's kindness, they hire mercenaries to go to battle. And here we learn, I think, a strange reality of our own human condition, our own human hearts, that we prefer to go to war against the Lord's anointed than to humbly confess our sin against him. And the Ammonites respond like many do today. Who needs repentance when you can fight? And so they rally to fight. Let's read about it in verse six. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maaka with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Maaka were were by themselves in the open country. Now notice the text is pretty clear. David is not the aggressor here. The Ammonites have teamed up with the Syrians. They're rallying their forces together. They're going to war to take on David. Now as David's intel notified him of the thousands of men gathering for war, To defend Israel, he sends Joab and the mighty men to to go and mount a line of defense. But as the battle begins, we're told and we get a sense that the battle is a trap. The Ammonites lined up for battle at the gate, but the Syrians hid in the open country. And Israel's army will be surrounded. They must fight from two fronts. And you don't have to be an expert in ancient warfare to know that this is the sort of positioning that leads to your whole army being slaughtered. But yet we see Joab, this complex figure that he is. He acts here in this occasion 
with courage and with faith in the Lord as he puts a plan in place and rallies the troops to fight against what seems to be an impossible battle. Let's read about it in verse nine. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Notice what Joab does. He quickly discerns what's happening and he comes up with this strategy. He splits the forces into two. He takes some of the best fighters and he's gonna cover the rear flank against the Syrians who are fighting in the open country. And he leaves the rest of the army in the hands of Abishai, his brother, to fight the front against the Ammonites. So if one struggles, the arrangement is that the other will come to their aid. But, but even with this wise strategy, the prospect of victory seems very, very slim. And so Joab urges his brother, have courage for the cities of our God. See, Joab recognizes that if they get slaughtered here, if the whole army gets slaughtered, the Ammonites and the Syrians have a free walk-in to invade all of Israel. They are the line of defense. But ultimately, Joab puts his trust in the Lord and in his sovereignty, resting the battle's outcome in the Lord's hand. So Joab and his men, we're told, fought with such intensity on the Syrian front, on that rear flank, that the mercenaries began to flee into the hills. And when the Ammonites realized that their hired help had abandoned them in the middle of the battle, then they abandoned the city. And though the army of Israel was surrounded on every side, the enemies scattered in fear. As the Syrians retreated up north, their general, Hadadezar, rallied the Syrians to take on Israel, and they will not be shamed by defeat. And so the events that follow seem to be the events described earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 3. So describing how David's kingdom begins to expand northward toward the Euphrates. And here we read the dramatic historical picture of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This time, David will not send Joab. The Lord's anointed himself will come and crush the Syrians. In their raging and in their plotting, the nations will become the heritage of the Lord's anointed. Let's read about it in verse 15. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezar, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. 
And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. After this battle, the Syrians subject themselves to David's kingdom and become at peace. Their violent hostility against David and against the kingdom was put to peace as David led the army of Israel like a rod of iron, dashing the Syrian army like a clay pot. After this, the Syrians will no longer come to the aid of the Ammonites, no longer hired helps. The Ammonites are on their own from here on out. And the Lord's king, as we've seen throughout this morning, is kind. Yet his wrath is quickly kindled. No wonder Psalm 2 urges us to kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. All the fighting, all of the plotting, all of the conspiring began. Why? Because the Ammonites scored, scorned the kindness of the king and rebelled against him. But the Lord will give the nations as a heritage to his son. And in David, we are reminded how Jesus shows his loving kindness to the nations. Jesus longs to minister to all the peoples of the earth, to comfort them in the burden of their sin, to save them, to live at peace. So do not respond this morning like the raging nations. Do not harden your heart against his kindness and become more emboldened in your hatred and plotting against Jesus. Your response this morning should be to submit to Jesus to give your allegiance to him, to bend your knee in repentance and to serve him. Because for those who insist on their rebellion against Jesus, the Lord will, at his time, bring the full weight of his wrathful justice against his enemies. Look at Mephibosheth. Look at how sweet and tender and gracious and generous the kindness of God's king can be. And look at the Ammonites. Look at the Syrians. Look how violent his wrath can be to those who reject his kindness and who make war against him. We have seen how David's kingdom expands in every which direction, even as he reigns with righteousness and justice. He, how he pours out kindness upon the lowly and kindness to the nations. The Syrians have been subdued, not so the Ammonites. The war with them will continue and sets up the context for David's grave sin in the next chapter, in chapter 11. And as David's sin, his kingdom will be preserved, but his kingdom will soon be marked by instability and conflict. David is a great king. He's a messianic-like king, but he is no Messiah. I hope that you're discovering as we keep studying the book of Samuel together, that the flourishing of David's kingdom points to a better king and a better kingdom. This morning, you can receive the kindness of King Jesus by humbling yourself in the dirt like Mephibosheth with repentance and faith, finding the grace of his salvation freely offered to you. Or this morning, you can reject the king's kindness and in your rebellion, meet his wrath. Our eternity is determined whether we gladly submit to God's king or violently reject God's king. Friend, make no mistake, there is no third way. Those are your only two options. He is either a threat to your autonomy or he is your Lord and your God. Jesus' grace is far more generous and lavish 
than any David could show Mephibosheth. And his wrath is more severe and agonizing than any David could show the Syrians. So submit this morning gladly before Jesus and may his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, expanding to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, until the whole earth is filled with the glories of his kindness. Let's pray together.